In this episode of Fictional Hangover, we take a virtual trip to London and talk about poor decisions, solving the Jack the Ripper murders, and being excessively British with intense Americanisms in our discussion of Nine Liars by Maureen Johnson. It sounds like murder. everybody, welcome to Fictional Hangover, a podcast about young adult and new adult books, series, authors, and voice actors that is full of spoilers. I'm Amanda. And I'm Claire, and today we're going to discuss Nine Liars by Maureen Johnson. Standard disclaimer. If you haven't read this book, please remember that Fictional Hangover is all about spoilers. If you haven't read or listened and don't want to be spoiled, stop listening to us and go read or listen to the book. Then come back. If you haven't done this but want to pretend that you have, or if you don't care about spoilers, or if you just like the show so much that you don't care about any of that, then listen up. Yay! Yay for more Maureen Johnson! And this one fits in with our road trip theme this month. It does! That's what I was going to ask as my initial thoughts. Like, does this count as a road trip? Because it does. It does. But road trip is a catch-all for any kind of visit from one place to another and you return again. Yes. Yes. Road trip's basically a fancy word for hot and you're going on holiday for a period of time. Yes. Road trip. It doesn't have to be in a car. But there are, they do travel by car. Exactly. They do have a road trip within a road trip. It's road tripception. It is. It's perfect. Okay, we'll get, we're entering territory, discussion territory. Should we get some background information yes. before we get too far in? Yes. So I read an interview on bookpage.com. And the interviewer says, All of your books about Stevie balance page-turning mysteries with real emotional stakes for Stevie and her friends. Did you begin Nine Liars by asking, What crime do I want Stevie to solve this time? Or, What's happening in Stevie's life right now? And Maureen's response is, It's the first one, though I'm always thinking about what happens in the second. Stevie's life, that's an organic process. The murder mystery is a machine I build piece by piece and assemble carefully. Stevie's life grows around it like a flowering vine, she said, writerly. And that's why I picked it. (laughs) She said writerly. She said said, writerly. That's why I picked that quote. But also because this one... This book, this adventure of Stevie's, has a lot more of Stevie stuff in it than than murder. So I thought it was important. Yes. It has character development and, and stuff. Yes. Yeah. So that's why I picked that one. But also because she said what she said writerly. So I like that. And I said so eloquently. <laughs> Not. <laughs> okay now doubling back to initial thoughts and Uh, my question was does this count as road trip and we said yes it's a road trip within a road trip it's road tripception do you have any initial thoughts welcome to my side of the pond even if it's just this week (sighs) shall we begin yes (laughs) Why not? <laughs> End of program. I don't know what that means. The end. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> June 23rd, 1995. 9.30 p.m. 
There were five people in the Volvo and another four in the Golf behind, making their way through the county roads of Gloucester, with Britpop blaring out the windows. Nine in total. And they aren't just any nine. They are the nine. Greater than the sum of their parts. Sebastian, Theodora, Yash, Peter, Suze, Angela, Julian, Rosie, and Noel. Friends from pretty much the moment they started at Cambridge University Freshers' Week theatrical auditions and inseparable throughout. Eventually, they decided to set up their own theatrical group called The Nine. By their third year, they had moved into a shitty student house together and everything was shared, from socks to cereal, soap to partners. Now, though, they are celebrating graduation with a party at Sebastian's family house, Merriweather. They expect things to get very messy, just not in the way they did. Mm, no. Sounds like a murder to me. <laughs> it would be truly devious if it was. Stevie is procrastinating and cake is preferable to doing schoolwork, so she persuades Nate to go with her to get some. Nate, who usually procrastinates along with her, has become really weirdly focused on his writing, but the siren's call of cake cannot be denied. Nate asks Stevie about the cold cases people have been emailing her, but it's just the usual stuff. It's nothing exciting. Stevie is also procrastinating on choosing where to go for college. She has many tabs open with places but can't make a decision. Janelle and Vi are being so organised with their spreadsheets, which delights my heart, and it's giving Stevie so much anxiety. Nate basically says Stevie is annoying her in her decision, and she should solve a little murder to keep her busy. Yeah, maybe a little murder would help take the edge off. Just a little murder. Just a little. Just a little, 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 little bit of murder. A sousant of murder. An amuse-bouche of murder. Which like an ordeal of murder before the main course of college applications. And murder. <laughs> and murder. Side of murder. <laughs> June 23rd, 1995. 10.30pm. Angela is in her room unpacking her things to the sounds of blur coming from another room. Angela's thoughts turn introspective. This is their last big weekend before they graduate and the nine will split off to do their own thing. It's difficult for her. Their troop, her found family, won't be together anymore. Peter comes in and interrupts her thoughts. Out of all the pairings in the group, Angela has never gotten together with Peter, but maybe she will this weekend. It seems to be heading that way. After Peter leaves, Rosie knocks. She has something to confess, a secret she knows Angela is trustworthy enough to keep. But before she's able to tell her, Suze comes in with warm champagne. Rosie tells Angela she will tell her later. She never does. Sounds like murder. Stevie is in her room eating a piece of chocolate cake with maple syrup in it. Well, this is Vermont. There's maple syrup in absolutely everything. Anyway, it's time to tackle her assignments. Oh, oh, here's an idea. She could give herself up bangs. She's just... Definitely. 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 Luckily for Stevie's hair, Janelle confiscated her scissors two weeks ago, the last time she threatened cutting bangs. 
Stevie sits down to read again, but thankfully David calls. Yes, and he's slightly drunk. In between David slurring how pretty she is, he asks her to come to England and says he's talked to the people and she can study abroad and Nathan Janelle and Vi can come too. Ellingham embraces remote learning opportunities after all the murders and such, so the four build their study abroad case, make arrangements for passports, and within ten minutes of sending the proposal to the new Ellingham director, Dr Quinn, have an appointment to discuss. June 23rd. 1995. 11 p.m. Sebastian has organized a game of hide-and-seek in the dark. As the hiders are found, they will be given a torch and become a seeker. The game lasts for hours until the weather turns and they decide to call it. Rosie and Noel, however, can't be found, so the others get drunk on expensive whiskey without them. In the early hours, and extremely unsteadily, they start to head to bed and bathrooms depending on their greatest need when Suze spots a torchlight in the gardens. Rosie and Noel must have found a torch, so Suze decides to shout to them that the game is over, but Sebastian tells her not to. After the way Rosie and Noel have been looking at each other, they could use some privacy. This time it does not sound like a murder. No, it sounds like boinking. Heading to their appointment, Stevie, Nate, Vi and Janelle run into Larry, the school head of security, who warns them that Dr. Jenny Quinn, the school director, has been humming that morning. This is not necessarily a sign of someone in a good mood. After some discussion regarding the scholastic nature of their proposed one-week-long trip to London, which will include visits to cultural landmarks, the Tower of London, the Houses of Parliament, the Victorian Albert Museum, the National Gallery, the British Museum, to name only a few, Dr Quinn agrees, with conditions. Stevie has faced murderers less intimidating than Dr Quinn, but at least she has her approval to go. June 24th, 1995, 8.30 a.m. Theodora is an early riser, always has been. Despite feeling a little worse for wear from the champagne and whiskey, she makes the rounds accounting for her friends and finds that Rosie and Noel are still missing. Peter, Yash, and Angela follow the delicious smells of bacon sandwiches and coffee Theodore prepares and eat before venturing outside into the torturous sunlight to look for Rosie and Noel, who they assume have been boinking all night in a potting shed. They do find Rosie and Noel in a shed. And they're dead. Sounds Definitely like a murder. murder. Sounds, sounds like a murder. It does. It sounds like a murder, right? <laughs> Before they go to London, Stevie asks Janelle about what clothes she should wear to um, entice David to have sex with her for the first time. <gasps> Nothing. Boinking. <laughs> for boinking. Nothing <laughs> is appropriate for Stevie or really in her price point. Like, why can't black hoodies be sexy? Why? But eventually she gets something and soon Stevie, Nate, Vi and Janelle are on the plane to London. The flight is a blur for Stevie. She just sits and stares at the in-flight screen until they reach Heathrow. And then it's just a blur of travel letters, signs and luggage. The journey from the airport somewhat reminds Stevie of Ellingham Academy with the fields and sheep until they reach the city and they're replaced with a lot of brick buildings with long windows. David has been texting her throughout the flight, but she only gets the messages once they've landed. 
Unfortunately, something has come up, and his texts say he'll try and see her tonight. Stevie is, quite frankly, pissed, and rightly so, which makes Nate so glad for the wee attention. <laughs> That's sarcasm. That immediately begins their trip. As they get out of the car, and being American look the wrong way, they nearly knock over a cyclist. Luckily, the cyclist greets the jerks with a smile on his face. It's David! Yay! He was playing a trick and not committing murder. David helps his friends into their building, called Craven House, and shows them to their rooms. At Stevie's room, he comes in with her and they kiss and hold each other, making up for lost time. Unfortunately, David really does have a thing to go to. It's a lecture he wishes he could get out of but can't. But it's only a couple hours and he says he'll meet them in the local after. Stevie unpacks her hodgepodge belongings and takes her sex clothes to show Janelle. Janelle can't believe that Stevie found a sex hoodie, a Union Jack onesie, and declares that it's perfect for her. <laughs> for boinking. For boinking. A, boink, a boinking onesie. June 24th, 1995, 8pm. The police came and seemed to swarm Merriweather as they looked inside and out for clues to Rosie and Noel's murders. The living members of the Nine were hungover and shocked the whole day. Apparently there had been burglaries in the area, but surely that doesn't explain Rosie and Noel's murders? Eventually, Angela is able to go to her room for a bath and Theodora follows to talk. Angela confesses Rosie wanted to talk to her about something and seemed particularly worried about it. She also tells Theodora that she swears the shared Rosie and Noel were found in didn't have a lock on last night during their game. But Theodora tells Angela she must be mistaken, because the lock was definitely there this morning. David takes Stevie and the gang to his designated local a few streets away, stopping to pick up fish and chips to have with their drinks first. It's odd to them that they can drink alcohol, but it's legal over 18 in the UK, so when in London... After their meal, David takes them to the London Eye, where they meet up with David's college friend, Izzy, who is able to get them into a pod through a family friend. She's really nice. Suspiciously so. Stevie and her friends are really only okay and not super fantastic as Izzy's praise would make them seem. As the pod comes back to the ground, Izzy pulls Stevie to one side. She's been eager to talk to her about a murder. As Nate says, there it is. There it is. Murder. It Sounds is. like murder. Sounds like murder. In the notebook of DCI Philip Starling, Gloucester Constabulary, a very factual series of events of the night of June 24, 1995 at Merriweather is given. It includes further details the remaining nine would not know. The axe used to murder Rosie and Noel was found in a stream a short distance away. Evidence indicates Rosie died first. The light bulb in the shed was smashed during the attack and traces of Rosie's blood were found on the remains of the glass. Oof. Gruesome. The next day, the Ellingham game have a lacklustre pret-a-manger breakfast and later Stevie with David and the rest of the gang head to meet Izzy and get the tube to Islington. Before they reach their final destination, Izzy's Aunt Angela's place, she gets everyone Indian takeaway, which they eat in Angela's living room. 
Angela hosts historical documentaries now and gives them a brief history of Henry VIII's dissolution of the Catholic Church in England, Anne Boleyn, her execution, and Guy Fawkes when they mention they'll be visiting the Tower of London. At the mention of an axe, Izzy brings the conversation to the murders of Angela's two friends back in 1995. Angela was clearly not expecting Izzy to bring up some random Americans to her flat to talk about the murder of her dear friends. (laughs) Stevie, used to reluctant interviewees, starts giving an account of the facts she knows them, purposely being incorrect. She knows that people may be reluctant to talk about uncomfortable things, but they don't mind putting the facts right, and Angela is no different. She explains that the Nine was a theatrical troupe, and how most of them are in the entertainment business in some fashion or form still. She says they regularly went to Sebastian's family home for weekend parties and they played hide-and-seek. Izzy jumps in with more information. It seems where Angela was on painkillers and Izzy was looking after her, Angela confessed that she thought one of her friends was a murderer and said something about something being planted. Now, fully compassmentous, Angela denies it, and anything Izzy claims she said about the lock on the shed saying it's the past, leave it alone. Stevie doesn't push, but later that night, in her room, as jet lag exhaustion overtakes her, Stevie knows Angela is lying about the lock, and that she isn't sad or annoyed. She's scared. In a flashback to a recording of Angela's witness statement in 1995, there is obvious hesitation when she's questioned about the lock on the shed. Though, in the end, she says everything was fine and the shed was quite locked. The next day, they visit the Tower of London in the morning, which Stevie pays very little attention to as her mind is consumed with axe murders and locks. The grisly tales of beheadings by the Raven Master does not entertain. The torture chamber passes her by, and the crown jewels offer little sparkle. The only things of passing interest are the story of the two lost princes, supposedly murdered, and the giant locks on the cell doors. Nate can tell Stevie's lost in the latest murder mystery. Thank goodness Vi has been paying attention and is able to give the report to Ellingham. In the afternoon, they head back to Craven House so Stevie can meet David who takes her to Whitechapel for a Jack the Ripper tour. It's pretty crappy sensationalist tour, so they ditch it in favour of getting Donna kebabs. Throughout the evening, David's phone buzzes. It's Izzy and Stevie is convinced something is going on between them and spoils their meal by sort of accusing him of a cheating. David is not the slacker he used to be and is really trying and wants to make their relationship work. The whole situation causes Stevie to have an anxiety attack, effectively ending the night as her medication makes her drowsy. Excerpts from Suze's witness statement confirm the group played their usual game of hide-and-seek, and she stayed by some shrubs until she was found. Suze confirms when the storm started, they called an end to the game and came inside and drank whiskey. Suze tells of the flashlight she saw. She thinks around 2.30, but no one else saw it. Suze also tells the police about Rosie's breakup with Julian, but it wasn't anything major. In the excerpt from Sebastian's statement, he reiterates that the storm ended play and that Julian was the last to be found, clinging to the pergola roof. As Meriwether is his family home, Sebastian confirmed his parents were away in Greece and that they lock up everything before going, including the shed, the lock of which was purchased due to the recent burglaries. He says he doesn't know who has the gate code, but it's likely not too much of a secret because people are always coming and going. 
Sebastian also confirms Sue's seeing the light while they drank whiskey, but not that he saw it himself. The next sounds like a murder. Sounds like a murder, doesn't it? Maybe even two. Maybe. The next year, Stevie, Nate, Vi and Janelle are headed to Westminster, this time taking a double-decker bus instead of the tube. They wander the huge abbey building and designed to make you feel small and house thousands of dead before going to the House of Parliament, Palace of Westminster, Nelson's Column and the National Gallery. It's all starting to blur, but relief comes when David texts, finished with classes for the day. When he meets up, he has brought Izzy along and she's frantically worried about her aunt Angela, who has gone missing. Angela's house still has all their takeout cartons lying about, so she's been gone since the other night. The only information she has is a long group text exchange with the remaining members of the Nine as Angela tries to gather them at Merriweather that weekend to discuss things. And something about she had the button? Weird. Partway through the conversation, Angela stops responding. It's time for Stevie to look through her flat. Angela's flat is exactly how they left it, and her passport is still there, so she hasn't disappeared abroad. As Stevie struggles to see anything that could be considered odd or a clue, Angela's cat, Doorknob, comes in and steals a bit of day's old chicken. Izzy chases the cat into a cubbyhole she never knew about. Behind the vacuum cleaner is a lockbox, and despite their best efforts, they can't get it open. Stevie suggests they take it with them and keep trying because there may be something important inside. In the meantime, Izzy is going to set up meetings with those of the Nine still in London. Stevie needs to be careful, though. Dr. Quinn made one of her promised random phone calls and doesn't sound entirely convinced by Stevie's sudden interest in the Tudor period. In the excerpt of the witness statement of Theodora, she recounts going to check on everyone the morning Rosie and Nora found. She always liked to make sure everyone was okay and accounted for after a bender. She also confirms it was she and Julian who found their bodies. In Julian's excerpt, he confirms he didn't check that the shed was locked. He saw no point because Sebastian had told them it was, and that he spent hours on top of the pergola before being found. He also admits to kissing some other girl at the pub while still seeing Rosie, which is what ultimately ended their year-long relationship. And this happened very recently. Today's sightseeing takes the Ellingham gang first to the Natural History Museum and then the Victoria and Albert Museum. However, at two o'clock, Stevie leaves to meet Izzy and some of the nine, and Nate, Vi, and Janelle cover for her with Dr. Quinn. Stevie and Izzy go to Suze's place, where Peter and Yash also meet them. Stevie gets them to talk about Angela and Merriweather in 1995. Suze was the group photographer and pulls out some pictures from the week leading up to and that night at Merriweather. In one, the shed is clearly visible. They promise to do whatever they can to help find Angela. Everyone seems mad at Julian, who is now an MP, but not much more than that. To be useful, they made up some missing person flyers and posted them around Islington. When they get back to Craven House late, Stevie accepts David's invitation to go to his room. As things start to heat up, Boinking. Izzy has spectacularly bad timing to deliver updates. Angela got a call from an unknown number during the middle of the text exchange. The nine are meeting at Merriweather tomorrow night, and Izzy has wrangled an invite for them all. This isn't as great as it may seem. 
Vi and Janelle protest because Dr. Quinn will kill them and they want to stick to their schedule. However, if Dr. Quinn agrees to them going to Gloucester, they will come. If not, then they will stay and they will carry on with their plans. Stevie calls, makes her case, minus any mention of murder or missing persons, obviously, and lies to her friends when she tells them Dr. Quinn said yes. She did not. Not cool, Stevie. Not cool. She said no. She said In an excerpt from Peter's witness statement, he discusses how and where he hid, that he took a bottle of champagne with him as he hid, and that Yash found him. The whiskey later did him in, and he took himself to bed, ill. He didn't get out of bed until late morning, and he, along with a couple of others, needed restorative fry-ups and monster munch, so they went to the shops, and when they came back, the police were there. In Yash's statement, he admits to hiding under a bed and was found straight away, having been too drunk to find a good spot. They went outside around midnight in the rain, and he never noticed anything wrong with the shed because Sebastian had stuffed the keys down his trousers. After the whiskey, he couldn't really tell when or what had happened. (laughs) Next morning, Stevie and the elegant gang Izzy and Angela's mystery lockbox set off for Gloucester via Paddington Station. Yes, it is a real place and not just a teddy bear. Stevie lets the conversation about colleges wash over her as she looks at the pictures of the nine back in 1995 on her tablet and ignores the huge lie she told to get her friends on the train. However, something in the background noise sparks Stevie's brain and she goes to her case in the luggage rack and the lockbox inside. Angela talked a bit about Guy Fawkes when they visited and now they're talking about it again. Remember, remember the 5th of November. The code is 0511, the 5th of November. The lock pops open. Inside the lock box, which is now spread out on the train table, are police files, crime scene photos, witness statements, and Angela's notes from that night in Merriweather. What stands out is a newspaper article about the disappearance and death of American tourist Samantha Gravis, published the same day as Rosie and Noel's death. After a hair-raising taxi ride through country lanes, the gang reach Merriweather and are greeted by Sebastian, who shows them to their rooms. As the lie is chewing at her, Stevie heads to Nate's room and confesses what she did. On some level, Nate expected it, but warns Stevie that Vi may be ultimately fine. Janelle will not, and she needs to know sooner rather than later what Stevie did. If Dr. Quinn calls, he isn't going to cover for her. Stevie promises to tell Janelle that night. That sounds like a murder. (laughs) Murder of friendship. (laughs) Only Stevie and David take Sebastian's tour of the gardens, which ends near the shed. During the tour, Sebastian explains how his parents never wanted a gay son and didn't hide their resentment of him, so he made it his mission to be the most flamboyant and extra person he could be. He graduated with the lowest grade possible, which is exactly what he wanted, moved to London with Suze and spent the next year drunken on drugs. It wasn't until he nearly died that he sobered up with support from his foul family, not his blood relatives. The tour ends near the shed, which gives Stevie the opportunity to ask some more specific questions. The tiny window on the shed was open in the crime pictures, and the crawl space to access it was never mentioned in the police records. That's critical information for the police to miss in the records. So they obviously didn't know the crawl space was there. 
Sounds like murder. <laughs> sounds like murder. It sounds like shoddy police work. <laughs> Everyone is at dinner that night, and Stevie notices the easy conversation the friends have. As the meal is winding down, Julian arrives. Julian has been in touch with people about Angela. The only information he has is that she was seen on the tube, her Oyster card and grainy CCTV confirms it, and her mobile, I have to say it like that, and her mobile last pinged near Waterloo Station. He has a call to make later, which will hopefully get more information. Unlike the others, Julian is not pretending all is well. The nine, along with Izzy and Stevie, move into the living room, and David, Nate, Vi, and Janelle head upstairs. Later, alone, Stevie, David, and Izzy discuss what they know so far. Stevie urges Izzy to really think about what her aunt said when she was on painkillers. Did she say something about plants, or did she say planted? Izzy can't be totally sure, but then Stevie has one of her trademark moments where all of the evidence seems to fit together. No one person out of the nine is lying. They all are. <gasps> it's the Orient Express. Oh, no. They all did the murder. Oh, did they? June 24th, 1995, 1pm. Sebastian and Theo find Rosie and Noel dead. They need the police, but what they don't want to happen is for the police to find the cannabis growing in the shed's crawlspace. Mm. Together, the nine clean out the crawlspace of the plants, leaving the window open to air it out. Dispose of the evidence in a construction skip disguised as a run to the supermarket for breakfast things and wash any blood they may have gotten on them with toilet paper, as that can be flushed away. They must all keep the secret. Knowing about the collusion to hide the cannabis doesn't answer who is the murderer or what happened to Angela. They moved the axe, as Sebastian had used it to hook the crawlspace rope pull before they realized it was the murder weapon. They cleaned the handle of his prints and threw it in the stream. The rope pull also had blood on it, and they needed to get rid of it in case the police saw the hatch and then found cannabis residue. But where is Angela? Sounds like murder. Sounds like murder. Yash asks Stevie where she got the crime scene photos she showed them, and everyone seems shocked that Angela had them and had been investigating. Stevie asks if Samantha Gravis is familiar, but no one is able to place her. Sounds like murder. All Americans look alike. <gasps> She's Canadian. Wait, spoiler! <gasps> the newspaper said she's, she's American. No, I think it's the other During, way around. No. The newspaper said, yes, yeah. She is American, but American. she said she was Canadian. Because yeah. cause everyone in the UK... Yeah, because yeah, yeah. everyone in the UK hates Americans? Yes. That's not true, but, you know, American has a stigma. If I ever get to go to the UK, I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. <laughs> During this Agatha Christie moment, Janelle comes in. Dr. Quinn has been on the phone. Nate lied and said they were watching a movie in the student common room. Janelle is upset that Stevie lied and says that if she had told them the truth, they would have worked something out. Lies have no place in friendship. 
Janelle also reminds Stevie that they're going back to London the next day and will finish their itinerary. So she only has 36 hours to figure everything out. Do, 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 That night, Stevie and David go to bed together for boinking. She doesn't need her sex onesie, and David came prepared. As they're in bed, someone knocks at the door. Yeah, dammit. Suze comes barging in. She knows who Samantha Gravis was. The Canadian! The Canadian? <laughs> Suze had been going through the scans of her old pictures, and one in their local stood out. In the picture are the nine, minus Rosie, who had been studying, plus the Canadian. Julian cheated on Rosie with her that night, and that was the reason they broke up. They didn't realize she was really American, and Suze genuinely liked her even lending her some CDs. It's entirely possible she drowned on the way to their shared house. Ooh. Sounds like a murder. Mm. Stevie can't sleep and, leaving David in bed, takes her tablet into the bathroom where there is an actual, honest-to-goodness, sofa. <laughs> the life of rich people. In the early hours of the morning, her tablet falls and wakes her. As she heads into the kitchen, Stevie runs into Nate, equally wide awake, and she persuades him to take a look around in the murder garden. While they investigate, Nate opens up to Stevie and comes out as asexual. She is the first person he has told, and she encourages him to tell the others, sure that Janelle will make him a pride drone. As they're talking, Theo comes out with mugs of coffee, and Stevie takes the opportunity to ask her about the button comment from the text thread, and it's put down as to just be the typo, damn autocorrect. As Theo walks back into the house, Nate comments that it was a strange conversation, and she seemed to want to have more than just coffee. Stevie thinks Theo, who is an extraordinarily smart woman, is figuring things out about 1995, and doesn't like what they seem to be adding up to, and it's scaring her. Oof. Meriwether is waking up, and breakfast preparations are underway. Everyone already seems busy catching up with work. As everyone but Julian is sitting in the dining room talking about work or the plans for the rest of the trip, Stevie mentions getting her dad a bottle of whiskey. Her friends know this is blatant fiction, and ask about the whiskey they drank that night in 1995. It was a very expensive bottle back then, and not something you can pick up from the duty-free shop at the airport. As the friends recount how clumsily drunk Sebastian was trying to get that bottle out of the cabinet, Julian walks in. By his expression, everyone knows something has happened. Angela has been found dead in the river. Ooh. Sounds like a murder. Sounds like murder. <laughs> the crowd disperses in various groups and directions, leaving Stevie alone. Stevie takes a walk around the grounds, and as she's sitting, Julian runs into her. He's been reading up on Stevie's previous cases and shares some additional information his sources sent him. Angela was found with her wallet, containing £40 and credit cards, intact, a set of keys, her phone, her oyster card, a new Oral-B toothbrush in package, a box of strepsils, 
a blister pack of Nitol that can hold seven tablets, six were missing, one remaining, and five large rocks. It seems Angela was drugged and or drugged herself and left to drown. As the Ellingham gang make ready to return to London, David tells Stevie he's going to stay and make sure Izzy is okay. We'll meet them after their, with their planned fancy tea and theatre show. On the train back, Nate asks Stevie about the whiskey questioning. She doesn't know why, she asked, except that the point in the evening feels important. The afternoon tea was expensive and barely touched. The theatre show was also a dramatic disappointment. No one was in the mood, really, and only went ahead with it because it had been planned. After they head back to Craven House, their London trip seeming at an end without the bang they had hoped for. Stevie heads to David's room. She'd been waiting all afternoon for the message to say he was back in the city. His room is empty, but she finds Izzy's and finds him in there. In the hallway, Stevie is rather peevish with him. She wants to spend her last night with him, but he says he needs to be with his friend for a little while longer. They part with cutting remarks, and Stevie falls asleep in her sexy onesie waiting for David to arrive. But he never does. Stevie has four hours left in London. She needs to pack, see David, and return the lockbox. She texts David and they arrange to meet. He's brought coffee and asks to take a walk. And though she needs to pack, she agrees. Eventually they stop and David fumbles the it's not you, it's me speech. (sighs) Janelle calls Stevie, interrupting them, worried because Stevie hasn't packed, giving David the opportunity to leave. Janelle, her moment to shine, pulls everyone together, gets Stevie ready to go. Nate offers to punch David in the dick, but Janelle, she wants that job. (laughs) Sounds like murder. (laughs) Sounds like there needs to be murder this time. Stevie lets herself be managed and pulled along until they reach the Heathrow airport. Her foggy brain, though, seems to be pulling at some memory about Angela's flat. They check their luggage in and head to security, Stevie the last in line. Before she goes through the gate, Stevie steps out under the guise of needing to pee and hides in the bathroom until the plane is boarded and the gate is closed, her friends frantically texting. Eventually, she responds that she has to finish this case and that she'll get a later flight. No lies. Stevie makes her way back into London and arranges to meet Izzy at Angela's flat. Stevie pulls out Doorknob's treasures that were next to the lockbox. His toy mouse, part of what looked like a real mouse, a used tea bag, two buttons, a crumpled tissue, a dirty cotton swab and a grape stem. It's the buttons that ring bells in Stevie's mind. Izzy thinks one is from a sweater and the other is a Stella McCartney. Dismissing these for now, Stevie puts her earphones in and starts walking the house, examining everything. Sitting in Angela's office, Stevie writes down three things that keep coming up. The lock, the button, and Samantha Gravis. Stevie becomes increasingly frustrated and reviews the text thread Angela had and forces Izzy to recall their conversation before the murders. Something about Anne Boleyn and her beheading. How the executioner pulled a trick to get her head in the right position. Something sparks in Stevie's mind and she rummages through Angela's trash until she finds the small piece of paper she needs. There is no button. Stevie knows what happened. Now, he just has to prove it. 
Izzy is able to set up a private pod on the London Eye and arranges for the remaining nine to come on the pretense of having a memorial for Angela. When the pod reaches its peak, the wheel stops and Izzy invites everyone to sit because Stevie has something to say. Stevie tells them about Angela's Anne Boleyn story, how a little bit of fakery gets results, and that the button isn't real. It's fakery, which drew out the person responsible. Angela went to meet them, probably thinking they had the same suspicions as her. And in fact, she was meeting the murderer of Samantha, Rosie, and Noel. The thing that kept leaping out to Stevie from the witness statements was that Sebastian had put the house keys down his trousers, yet couldn't get the drink cabinet open. He couldn't open it because he didn't have the right keys. It was only when they were replaced by Peter on the pretense of helping him did they get the cabinet open. June 23rd, 1995, 11pm. Peter watched Julian go off with Samantha. Then next, she was flirting with Yash. He was ready to graduate and not be surrounded by his friends. He loved them, but he was tired of them. Peter had been studying the night Samantha was headed to their house to return the borrowed CDs. They walked together and she seemed to be flirting with him. She suggested the steal a punt and rode down the river. Then Peter went along with it. At the dock, Peter didn't push Samantha in, but he didn't help her when she fell in and hit her head. He found out it takes very little effort or time to hold someone's head below the water. Oof. Sounds like murder. Sounds like murder. (laughs) The next day over breakfast, Rosie could tell something was off with Peter. He knew she knew, and as the days passed, he could see her watching him. The morning they were getting ready for Merriweather, the article about Samantha's death was splashed over the paper. Though we got rid of it, Rosie saw a copy when she popped out. During the blur and cigarette-filled drive to Merriweather, Peter worked out exactly what he needed to do. First, get the keys and exchange them with his own. Easily done. Next, get the bedroom facing the shed. Done. Peter intercepted Rosie between her visit to Angela's room and the start of the game, saying Yash was in trouble and he needed her help out at the shed. Peter urged Rosie into the shed and even blocked the door with a rake so they can't be interrupted. Rosie asks if Yash hurt the girl in the paper. Peter can't speak, so Rosie lets him fumble until she reveals she heard him with Samantha. She'd been in the shag tent in their garden with someone, so he can't pin it on Yash. Besides, Yash would never do something like that. Peter's panic slips away and he spots the axe. He swings and hits until Rosie doesn't look like Rosie anymore. As Peter is hiding her body, Angela rattles the door, playing the game and seeing if anyone is inside. Peter smashes the light bulb with the axe. Peter needs to find Noel. He was with Rosie in the shag tent, so when Rosie doesn't come back, he'll know. Peter purposefully gets caught so he can use the game as a disguise to search for him. It takes a while, and with a pretense that Rosie is looking for him, Peter finds Noel and lures him to the shed. It was easier to swing the axe this time. 
As he returns to the house, the storm hits, and inside, Sebastian is crawling to the drink cabinet, which is perfect. The rest of the cleanup was easy because he knew his friends and their habits. He borrowed clothes, staged the shed to look like burglary, and threw water around to confuse things. Lastly, he flashed his torch to muddle the timeline. As Peter drifts off to sleep, he promises to make something of himself so that their deaths wouldn't be in vain. Asshole. In the London iPod, Stevie says she has a story to tell them. She's able to recount the events of June 23rd, 1995 pretty accurately, all based on how a set of keys all look the same and a toothbrush. While Peter tries to defend himself, the evidence is there. Angela bought the toothbrush to replace the one she borrowed from Peter at their last party because Angela always returned what she borrowed. Everything else in her purse was accounted for on the receipt Stevie found in the trash, but the rocks were put there by Peter. Despite his protests, his friends can see the truth of Stevie's detective work. Izzy calls for their pod to be lowered. The minute they get to the ground, Peter walks off and Suze is being held back from throwing Peter into the river by Theo and Sebastian. Julian is on the phone and Yash is taking a moment to himself. What happens now? It's difficult to prove, but it will need to be investigated. The five, all that now remains of the nine, will pursue it, and they'll stick together as they look for justice. The five also promise, as thanks, they'll smooth things over for Stevie with her school. Possibly something about a terrible stomach bug and vomit everywhere. Phone calls will be made. In the meantime, Stevie will stay with Izzy. In the taxi back to Craven House, the events with David seem to crash down on Stevie now that Angela's murder is, well, somewhat solved. Izzy calls David an idiot and tells Stevie he broke up with her because he's intimidated by her and ever since, he's regretted it. All he talks about is his amazing smart girlfriend and frankly, she was prepared to not like Stevie. Izzy texts David, who was drunk on £3 vodkas in the local, so Izzy asks the taxi to take them to the pub. Once there, they scan the crowd, but Stevie can't see him. Izzy, a bit too perkily, says she's mistaken and he must have gone home, but Stevie knows she's lying. She turns and sees David's face pressed into another. The end. The end. Sounds like murder. Sounds like murder. So much murder. So much murder required right now. Uh, let's take a break. Don't go and commit murder right now, everyone. No. no. But listen to this promo. Unless you murder podcast. some cake. Murder some cake. Yeah, that would be okay. By eating it. Yeah, yes. that, yeah that would be okay. Hi there. I'm Volley, one of the hosts of the Reading Queens podcast. If you love books, fandom discussions, and having a good time, join your new internet friends as we take on such topics and more. Hosted by a group of published authors, Reading Queens is a podcast for every book lover. Every week, we get together to blab about our favorite books, why we love them, and the book boyfriends we wish were real. You can find the episodes on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other platforms, with a new episode launching every Wednesday. Thanks. Now back to the show. Okay. Mm. 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 Wow. Wow. 
should we discuss the ending first? I guess. I I just want to say, like, overall, I enjoyed this because I like the Truly Devious series. I like Stevie. I like all of her friends. I like that she solves murders. I like that they went to London. I like Kate Rudd's narration. Like, she does a great job with Stevie and, and all of her friends. So I like the book, but I also did not like this book at all. I agree. Um, It was... It's the weakest out of the Truly Devious series, Truly Devious series so far. Yeah. Um, and it's like, if I want to quantify it, it's a solid three out of five. Yeah, like solving this murder, I don't, I don't really get how Stevie solved this one. No, neither do I. And you know, if if they hadn't gotten involved if Izzy hadn't invited them over to Angela's I think Angela would still be alive so I'm pretty sure it's their fault that she's dead I agree and I wonder how we feel about that <sighs> yeah you raise an excellent point I agree if Izzy had not discussed it with Stevie, Angela would still be alive because it was after they left the apartment, after they left Angela's flat, that she sent the messages out to the rest of the nine. Um, Angela probably could have... Angela was, They're all smart cookies. Yes. And Angela's a smart person and she probably would have worked it out eventually. Yeah. But knowing then that it was Peter who murdered her friends she would have then been able to approach the situation from a very different point standpoint and with the support of the other remaining nine. Yeah. So I think I'm annoyed with Stevie because I think she has to have some responsibility for Angela's death. Yeah. There's a certain amount she's, she's there's a certain amount of care, well-being that needs to be done when you are um, an authority figure within the investigation and yes, she may still be a teenager she may be 17 year old but she's leading this investigation into mm. a murder yeah. of a very violent crime Yeah. Um, that regardless of being 30 years ago so I agree she's got responsibility in that. Yeah, I feel like in in the next one, because obviously there's going to be a next one, um, I, I have a feeling that, you know, with how much... how much Stevie's life and emotions were in this one, that she'll probably be spending a lot of time thinking about what happened in London and what happened with David. And once she gets past what happened with David, I think she's probably going to realize it's kind of my fault that Angela is dead. So I think that she'll probably have that realization 
in the next book. I think she's going to spiral a bit in the next book. Probably. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if she gets expelled from Ellingham. Um, I know that Julian and et al said that they're going to make phone calls and smooth things over with Ellingham to say that it was a stomach bug. But Dr. Quinn, who is the new Ellingham director, um, she's not going to believe that. Unless you're going to fake medical records. Which they could, because they have Theo. Exactly. They've got, they've got everything there. Yeah. Exactly. They could do that. But unless they're going to fake the medical records... Uh, should, and even then Dr Quinn is going to know it's a lie and on top of that you can't blame a stomach bug on Stevie lying to her friends to get them to Gloucester yeah I don't think that I think that their phone calls and stuff are only going to get her home and like cover why she wasn't on her flight because there's no way that any of that could explain why she disregarded rules and took her friends to a place with a murderer. It wasn't even just disregarding the rules. It was disregarding direct order as well. Yeah. When she asked permission and she was given an outright no. Yeah. So that that alone for me would be grounds for her expulsion from Ellingham. Yeah. I mean, she took, it- she took her friends somewhere where she did not have permission to go to a house... With a murderer. they yeah. Any of them could have died then. Exactly. And she can't claim that she didn't know that there was a murderer there because she knew she was suspicious. Yeah. And she knew, based on the stuff that, that she had found out from the beginning, that Rosie suspected one of her friends did something bad. And, well, you know all of their friends they're all right there yeah she doesn't have a leg to stand on no so i i will be very surprised if in the next one she isn't expelled from ellingham and she doesn't spiral and quite honestly if vi and janelle and even nate but nate is so loyal um if they need to distance themselves from stevie for a little while to actually get perspective on their friendship and to give her time to actually get perspective on their friendship, I wouldn't be surprised. Because Stevie in this one was so ridiculously selfish. Mm. Yeah. she, the, the entire trip was based on the fact that she wanted to go and see her boyfriend. And then, you know, Nate, Vi and Janelle, you, you're coming along because David is your friend. Let's go and see him. Fine, that's fine, you know, but it was born because David wanted to see his girlfriend, she wanted to see David. Yeah. Fine, okay. But while they were there, they devised the itinerary based on the interests of the group and Stevie's so single-minded that she's only interested in murder and that's it. Murder and a sex hoodie. Um, that they planned this trip to see all of these tourist traps in London and all these historical sites and then base assignments and further research, etc, etc on these. And it was either Vi or Janelle had a meeting with like somebody in an art gallery mm-hmm. to discuss things and it was going to be great for their college application but instead Stevie lies to them to get them to Gloucester. Yeah. 
That's not what friends do. No. But I feel like Stevie is jealous of her friends who they all have all of these excellent things that they're going to do with their lives when they finish school. And this is all Stevie's got. All she's got is murder. She hasn't applied for any colleges. And even, like, even Nate has applied, which we find out that that's what he's been doing all along. You know, you think that he's writing his second book, which has been going on since the very first, (laughs) since Truly Devious, he's been supposedly writing the second book that he whatever so you think that that's what's happening right now especially after box in the woods yeah you think oh he's just writing he's writing and it's going to be great but no he's applying for colleges all over the place and spending thousands of dollars and then you notice little things in the background like well he's not buying food he's like barely eating anything and it's because he's out of money (laughs) U.S. college applications, by the way, we had a, like a separate conversation about this. We did absolutely we did. book wild. Yeah, absolutely mental. Yeah, I just, just I can't believe how much time and effort and money has to go into those things. Yeah, ridiculous. At least in the UK, you apply for like six. I don't even think you pay for it anymore because you do it through UCAS. I don't even think I pay. I can't remember paying for it. It's based on grades. None of this scholastic extracurricular nonsense. Jeez. Ridiculous. Anyhow, that's a discussion for another time that and place. Is. And if you're interested in the, the the difference between US college applications and UK college applications, get in touch with us separately or, you know, Google. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. It, I feel like I could go on about Stevie's... I don't know. I, poor decisions? I, poor decisions. I think that's probably it. A lot more. I don't think we need to. to, to I think we've, we've covered it. Yeah. And I've lost a lot of respect for Stevie in this book. Yeah. You know, thinking for future books, what if one of our friends dies so she's spiraling because we've already decided that she's going to be spiraling in the next one and maybe the only thing that gets her out of it is solving her friend's murder i will riot if it's nate me too i will full-on riot yeah he's a precious cinnamon roll and should be protected yeah, Nate's the best. Skipping ahead, Nate, always Nate, is my favorite character. Always. Forever. Same. Same. I also like d- Doorknob. Well, obviously it's a cat. And it's a fantastic <laughs> name for a cat. A cat named Doorknob is perfect. <laughs> Can I... Let's be positive about Stevie for a second. Okay. Sex hoodie. Sex hoodie was fantastic. <laughs> I did. I did appreciate that. I was so excited when you got to that part of the book because I was finally I couldn't say sex or it. That was really great. Um, I, speaking of that, though. Mm. Sex onesie. The sex onesie. Um, I guess this is probably also 
my surprise as well. Okay. David seemed like a completely different character in this one. Yeah, I agree. I agree, and I, I would agree that's my surprise too. Like, he... Like, I, I he just did... I don't have words. He did say he was pulling himself together, though. He wasn't the flaky guy that she knew in Ellingham. He was, he was pulling his life together. He was, You know, he was going to his university classes. Yeah. Which he wouldn't have bothered with at Ellingham or if he was in the States. Yeah. So he's trying to make himself, make something of himself and account, account for what he's doing. Yeah, and, and like, and that started with Box in the Woods, too. He started getting things you know he started being more responsible which is fine after he like purposefully ruined his father's campaign and now his father's not paying for anything anymore like he's he's getting his life together and it's it just seemed really odd to me that he invites them to london figures out a way to get them all there has condoms at the ready but then he breaks up with Stevie? Yeah. I mean, Izzy said he was intimidated by her. But not... But... I can't see him being intimidated by her in this one because she's really... She's not impressive in this one. She's not She's not present? No. She's just listening to Britpop, trying to get into the mood and thinking about photographs and random autocorrects, potential autocorrects. Can, did you spend an in, like an inordinate amount of time on your phone spelling out button trying to make it autocorrect into something else, or was that just me? Yes. Okay. No, 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 no. I okay. did it as well, and honestly, it was uh, unimpressive results. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't get anything. I couldn't get anything no. that would solve a murder. But then we found out that that was all fake anyway. That was fakery. No, I couldn't even get it to water crack two button if I'm perfectly honest. <laughs> yeah, I I agree. David, David was barely present in this book. I didn't I consider he was the point of going there. And I'm sorry, right? Okay, I unless things you know things probably have drastically changed, and they, they will have because I've attended. Um, I I work at university, and I can attend classes at the university just sit in classes don't get credit or anything from it but i've sat in on modules um and the as a student you do have to like sign in um usually but when i was at university we never had to do that so you could doll off lessons all the time you just got your mate to get the notes for you i had a friend who had two classes that clashed that had it with each other and they were both core modules for her degree because she was doing a joint degree so when it was the english one i took the notes for her in the week that she was at a business class and then somebody else took notes for her at a business class while she was at the big english one she alternated so we covered for her and we made sure yeah. that if there wasn't an, an, an attendance taken we got her signed in on it but that, you know that's a very rare occurrence that anything like that ever happened it was very very rare um but now I think they do have to, you know, you, you do have a student ID card, the same as if you're an employee somewhere, you have to, you know, security thing. But you can still Skype off. You would give Izzy the card and say, can you just sign a thing? 
Yeah, I just, I don't... I'm going to go and spend some time with my girlfriend. I'm going to go and boink my girlfriend, you know? Yeah, you, I just... You... I don't buy class... it. I don't buy the fact that he's in classes all day either. Because you're not. Like, university... Colleges in America are very different from British universities. But I would have pretty much one day a week. Every semester, one day a week, I wouldn't have classes. Yeah. And there'll be some time... There was once I had literally a seminar and a lecture at 8 o'clock in the morning and then 9 o'clock in the morning and the rest of the day I had free. No, see, that's how it is here too. Like, you can choose what classes you want to attend and when. So you pick your schedule and if you want to get all of your shit done, well, then you sign up for morning classes and then the rest of your day is free. Or We don't have that. The so, times are assigned. You just well, yeah, no, that's what I mean. Up. Like, if you have, you can sign up to take an eight o'clock class, or you can sign up to take the same class at one o'clock. Like, it just oh, we don't have that. You you pick your you make your schedule, and then you go to those classes. But it's not all day. Like, you no, don't you're no. not in classes all day long. Or maybe you decide that you only want to take classes on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So those are the classes that you sign up for. No, ours aren't as prescribed as, as as easy as that. You would say, I want to do X, Y, and Z classes, and then you get told when the times are. Oh. You, well, you I mean, do, yeah, that you have, you decide. There's no choice on when, which class you can go to. Here, you decide which classes you want to take, and they those classes exist at certain times. So you pick, do I want to take this professor who teaches it at this time? That's what I choose. I go to that class every Monday at eight until the semester is over. You um, can't, you can't like willy nilly go all over the place. Like you set your schedule and you go. We don't set our schedule. All we do is pick the class and then you get told, or oh, it's Professor Bloody Blah at eight o'clock on a Monday morning. And you go, oh shit. And it's only if because the the the, the 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 university puts the timetable together, and then they tell you what the timetable is. So that way, core modules aren't overlapping with each other shouldn't overlap with each other mm-hmm. um because everybody has it's a core module everybody has to do it you shouldn't have to fight to get onto the core module so it's there um and now and again there might be the word there was the odd module i wanted to do but it clashed with something else so i couldn't do it but that's because you told very little information you can't decide you're going to go to the morning or the afternoon class because there, there isn't a morning afternoon it is morning or it is afternoon. Yeah. There is one lecture, there's one seminar, there's one workshop, and that's it. You don't, you can't pick morning or afternoon. Because if that was the case, everything would have been afternoon and matter for me. I had one day where it was 10 o'clock in the morning, I had a seminar for two hours, and then I was back at six o'clock in the evening for a lecture for an hour. Mm. And that sucked. Yeah. Absolutely sucked. But my point is, and what you're saying as well, David is treating it like I cannot imagine him doing any kind of course where you are required to be in all day, every day. Yeah, that's not a thing. And especially and- when your girlfriend is in town, like you go to your classes that you absolutely cannot miss. And then the rest, like you your said, go get the notes. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of it is a lot of independent study time as well. Yeah. It's more 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 now than when I was at university. It's drilled in that it's independent study. You know, self-learning is huge at the universities now. So I, I struggle it. And talking about things that don't make sense time-wise, 
I am sorry, but there's no freaking way you can go to all of these tourist traps in such a short space of time. You cannot go to the Tower of London and be done by two o'clock in the afternoon and be somewhere else across the other side of the city. Bullshit. I call bullshit. I've been to the Tower of London and granted it was 10 years ago, but it's easily a half day place. You have to queue up to see the crown jewels no matter what time of the year it is you have to queue up and generally speaking it's not a short queue if you're going to be in the dungeons of what they've done and investigate the tower go and see the raven master have a and be there for the talks the talks are very set times it might be the top of the hour it might be the you know every half hour but they're at set times i cannot conceivably see them doing everything that they have done in such a short space i just can't it's not if you're getting anything out of it i mean if you're just going to walk out in front of it to say that you were there which is pointless if you're doing it as an educational week like the, the day that they were they went to the natural history museum and then the victoria and albert museum and then lunchtime they went somewhere else bullshit The Natural History Museum is a glorious cathedral of a museum. It is built like a a cathedral. It's built to honour nature. It is an architectural masterpiece. You can spend ages just looking at the main hall. They used to have Dippy the Dinosaur in the uh, Diplodocus in the central hall. They don't now. It's a huge, massive blue whale skeleton, which is glorious. And you can stand underneath and you can look up and you just... That takes ages. And yes, you can miss bits and pieces, but it is the Natural History Museum is a good chunk of a day. Yeah, I can't imagine Janelle, who's like super into engineering, and Vi, who I can't remember what they are into, but I know that they are into something. Like I can't imagine them not spending every waking moment exploring and looking at these museums and things like i don't i don't buy that they just zipped through them so you saying that like it's not physically possible then i don't think it is and i think if it was you're literally stepping in through the door looking around the main hall not really paying any attention to any of the exhibits because the natural history museum is freaking just go on google maps go on google earth and look and you'll see it and go bloody hell that's huge yeah you know and go and spending time there it's 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 crazy i think we spend it when i went and bearing in mind the dinosaur the dinosaur hall was closed for refurbishment so we didn't even get in there and i'm i'm desperate to go back to see that and I don't like taxidermy birds, so I ran through those places. So bearing in mind, we had to miss those two things. We were there most of the day. The animal sex one was really weird. They had an animal sex habits of animals um, like guest exhibit thing. It was weird, but it was really fun. <laughs> and honestly, there's just so much. There's so many talks. There's so many exhibition halls to go and see that I honestly... It, it annoys me that they quite clearly have not paid any attention. And there's one day where they go to Houses of Parliament, which granted, you can go into certain parts of the Houses of Parliament. I haven't been myself. Um, surprisingly, I've probably processed too much of trying to 
I'd probably take out the Tory MPs. I would never do that because that would be naughty. Um, but you can go to certain visitor sections. And but they go they go into Westminster Abbey because they specifically say how big it is and how full of dead people it is. So they've gone in there, and yeah, you're not going to spend hours in there, but you are going to have a look around. And Vi and Janelle are very interested in the architecture and the, mm-hmm. the, the about it. So they, they spend time there, and then they go to the National Portrait Gallery and somewhere else, and it's like, are they counting going on one of those open-top tourist buses as visiting these places? Maybe. Because that's what it feels like. And they do mention about taking a double-decker bus instead of getting the tube, which is fine. And if you, you will get to see a lot of the places like Nelson's Column and etc, etc. But these aren't next door to each other. There's still an element of travel that takes place. And it really reminded me of when we read Twilight and we talked about Seattle being two hours away, but it's not two hours oh away. My it's eight God. hours and a port ride away. That made me like... so mad. That's why I'm mad. This is my Twilight Seattle. It just... I, I, I am annoyed that they are rushing these places if they are physically actually going to these places yeah. and not giving them any justice. And seeing it from Stevie's perspective, how she just gave zero shits about yeah. these places was annoying. Yeah. It's and it's not because I've got this sense of British pride. It's a sense if I go to some place to visit, I want to see the place. I want to experience the place. Sure. I don't want to just look around quickly and be like, ah, oh, whatever. Waiter. I want to go and investigate a murder. And I know that's Stevie's personality, so I have to have some element of forgiveness for her. Yeah. But I also am annoyed that it's detracting from Vi and Janelle and Nate's experience because feel, of her selfish nature. I feel like Nate doesn't care. Nate can't afford to care. <laughs> I, don't feel, I don't think Nate cares. He can't afford to get a magnet from these places. Yeah. But Vi and Janelle, like, this is important to them. And that's... It's unfortunate. Extremely. See, like, like me... I feel like if I were to ever get to go there, like, I don't, there's a couple of places that, like, I think would be interesting to explore, but whenever I go on trips and things, I don't like to do touristy stuff. I want to do stuff that normal people do every day, and I feel like I'm a little bit weird in that. No, I agree. I I like to mix it up, and I would do both, and, like, for me, if you're going to go to London... Like, you don't necessarily need to go to the Tower, but go to the London Eye and you can see from the London Eye the landscape. You can see the Houses of Parliament. You can see London Bridge. You can see the Tower of London. You can get a great sense of the city from there without actually having to physically go there. But there is something about going to the British Museum and actually seeing the Rosetta Stone. Yeah. You know, and that's like last time I remember it was in the main hallway. The British Museum's freaking huge as well. But yeah, it's mix up the touristy things, especially. I mean, Amanda, if you were to fly the five thousand miles, or whatever it is, from Arkansas to London, uh-huh. you have to do the odd tourist thing. You have to because there's certain things you need to be able to say, "I've done it in my life." Yeah, you know, and it's like, oh, so what did you do in London? Oh. I, I walked around Canary Wharf. 
what's Canary Wharf? It's a business district. Don't do it. <laughs> no, look it. If I if I ever got to go to London, uh, the and people ask me, what did you do when you were in London? I would say I somehow forced my best friend to travel from her home hours away and dragged her to London as well. And then all I would be like, oh, I met Claire and then we did this and then we did that and then I was going to meet her in real life and it was so much fun. Like, that's what I would do if I went to London. Let's no, seriously, I'll be, well, I met Claire and then we just went to bookshops. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I don't, but that. I don't know. I feel, just, like, I feel like we've lost... I met Claire and went to a cheeky Nando's. Yeah, I know. I feel like we've lost something here, though. Um, I We haven't talked about the book in a long time. Except for the fact no, that we are, hate... No, we are. That no, they it did. is, because... Right. The biggest difference, though, that if you would come to London, it will be because you're here as a tourist, as a visitor. But then, to be honest, right, one week trip to London... To do an education for an educational trip. No, that's too far and too short a time. Yeah. I would have said a month. And especially if the accommodation is being, you know, part of another college, essentially it's like an exchange without the exchange. Yeah. I feel like this should not have been an educational trip, which is what they had to that's how they had to sell it to get Dr. Quinn to approve of them going. But it was a holiday. Yeah. Okay, so can I can we talk about 1995 a little bit? Do we know what 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 what? Oh, cast my mind back 1995. How old was that? No, 1995 so in this naive. book, Claire. Not real so life 1995. Wearing a maroon blazer and a blue shirt. Not oh, my, real. My uniform was ghastly. Okay, sorry. Not okay. real 1995. Book 1995. 1995 Gloucester. I really enjoy that the nine play hide and seek in the dark because that is what I used to do with my friends. Whenever my friends would come over to my house, we would play hide and seek in the dark. And the house I grew up in, like we had so much land and yeah, there were places that you couldn't go that was off limits. You can't go there. You can't hide there. But that is what we did in 1995. Did you have a murder shed as well? Uh, well, no, not a murder shed, but we we did have a barn. We had a barn. A murder no, barn? No <gasps> murders took place wow. there. But yeah, oh. um, that, I mean, that's what we did. We played hide that's and seek amazing. in the dark. It was probably, it was more like 97, 98. 90s. We'll say 90s. Ni- yeah. But still, yes, we played hide and seek in the dark. Yeah. So much fun. That's what we did. Anytime we had sleepovers, anytime we did anything, we played hide and seek in the dark. Whether it was inside, whoever's house we were at, or outside, or whatever, that's what we did. And it was so fun. <laughs> so I love that they played hide and seek in the dark. That was probably one of my favorite things, is that they played hide and seek. I enjoyed that. The um, Britpop Battle of the Bands, Oasis versus Blur. I remember that. Freaking hit Oasis. Wonderwall is one of the shittiest songs ever. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. <sighs> to be fair, I'm not particularly a Britpop fan. I just wanted to 1990- champagne I supernova was all... to you. 
<laughs> I like pulp. Pulp was fine. I don't know, I just wasn't into it. I don't know who Blur is. Oasis, I do know. I don't know who Blur is. You'll have to Google because I'm not singing it. Yeah, I don't really care. I don't really care. Um, it's just intensely British. Can it's I ask? Can I ask? Speaking of Jagged Little Pill, 1995 was Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill. Yes, that's when it came out. I have bought that CD three times in my life now, <laughs> and I'm downloads. Glad. I'm glad it's that you looked at the that songs. Are, that that is my '90s. None is Britpop, malarkey. Well, now you've ruined my segue because I was going to ask you something based on what you were speaking of before that, but then you burst out with "Jagged Little Pill." I wanted to ask you because you remember at the beginning of the episode when I didn't know how to say "glosta," and I was Gloucester. like, "Hey, how do you say this word?" and then I was worried that I was going to be butchering everything, but luckily I didn't have that many words to butcher. Don't um, think I put too much British in just because I'm being kind. Yeah, <gasps> it's like it's like that time that I took out all the Aztec words. Flowey <laughs> Bolchley. Um, we're, we're allowed to be on occasion. You've had your one goal, that's it. <laughs> yeah. How did you feel about the audiobook? This time. Oh, Cause, wow. Because like I said at the beginning, like I love Kate Rudd and she's a super delightful human being. And I love her Stevie and Vi and Janelle and Nate and David. Like she does such a good job. I love, I love just the sound of her voice. Yes. But having nine additional characters. No, ten because you count Izzy. Okay. It was a... The audio narration was so-so. The American? Mwah, perfect. Stevie and Nate, David, Bye, Janelle, all felt like coming home. It was lovely. Comfortable. But honestly, and Kate Rudd is a, a really talented audio narrator. Yeah, she really is. She, and she's lovely. We have spoken to her before, so people can go and check that interview out. Um, her Brit, so freaking disappointed. I just feel like you couldn't differentiate between them. Well, yeah, that's Rosie hard. was a stereotype Irish. It was that Rosie's Irish for what limited dialogue she had. It was like me doing an Irish accent, which is intensely, intensely should not be on the internet. Yeah, I and feel like it. Why were there so many? Why was it nine? Nine was a lot. And, like, some of the characters, I feel like they didn't even do anything. I think it would have been better if there had been fewer than nine. And then Kate could have honed her accents, honed her voices just a little bit better. But when you got fucking nine, ten, counting Izzy, new characters to do, that's rough. In all defense, though, Maureen Johnson, you don't write the book based on who the, the audiobook narrator's capabilities. That's true. You write the book based on what's needed in the story. And I can appreciate nine people making sense in the storyline because you want to make it the Orient Express experience. Right. She draws so much on Agatha Christie. Yes. And, you know, Sherlock Holmes to a lesser extent. But you need to have that room full of people. And if you don't have that room full of people, you are missing the Agatha Christie yeah. like essence. 
But like, I just Rosie kinda, was like, a stereotype. Yash was supposed to have had an accent, and it didn't come off well. Same with Theodora. She was supposed to be a strong black woman, and it did not come off across like that. Yeah. Um, Angela was fine. Izzy was not. Julian, Sebastian, Peter, <sighs> Noel. See- did Noel talk? I don't think Noel actually spoke. I don't spoke. think Noel actually spoke. I didn't. I didn't mind it. I. Oh but, no! Don't forget. Also, there was Samantha, but that's an American. So yeah, I. I don't think I disliked it as much as you did because these are the voices that you hear in your world every day. But it's just. I feel like it was a lot of work. I feel like it was a lot of work for her. It was general English. R P received pronunciation and just because you go to cambridge doesn't mean that you talk like that there is a very good chance some of them i mean sebastian it was a natural thing he was a technically a count by the end yes. his parents so he was aristocracy so yes i can appreciate him going to eton and cambridge i get that but there are others where like theodora and yash I doubt it. Based on it being the 1990s and, well, you know, the times that they'll have grown up when, I don't think they will have been of the socioeconomic um, strata the same as Sebastian, so they would not have the plum voice. Yeah. And you wouldn't be putting on the plum voice in Cambridge either. You know, they'd have got in based on their grades. Uh, so yeah, I I struggled with it, and I think it's the same as if a bad Brit does a a, a Brit does a bad American, like you know, like Hugh Laurie, in um, that when he does that, the Doctor can't mm. remember voice House and he Hat and House, he, his accent is classified as General American. It has no yes. specific state of origin, no. and I feel like that's kind of what was happening in this audiobook narration. So it was it would be fine for everybody else's ears, but I think as a Brit listening to it, it feels a little off. Yeah. So it wasn't the the Brit wasn't the best, but her American, like the Stevie and Nia, David, Vi, Janelle, you know, the characters we're no uncomfortable with. Fine. Very comfortable yeah. with um Yeah. I just had problems with the Brit. <laughs> and I know she could do it because she's such a good talent. I just think it's because she had 10 extra characters to be. At least. DCI. And that's hard. The, DC, the detective as well. Yeah, that's hard. Yeah. And it like almost... the guy on the Jack the Ripper tour, like there's a million more characters. It's like that time that we talked about January Lavoie being three people in a trench coat because she had literally 300 characters that she was <gasps> in the Diviners. There's a lot She's of so characters. Freaking so good. many. Yeah. She is so good. Do you know, I would have appreciated it more if when we do the flashbacks to 1995, each one is from a person's specific perspective. Mm. Yeah. There should have been different voices. That probably would have been easier for her to do too. That would have, it should have been new narrators doing it. It should have been an ensemble cast. It should have been an actual British or people. Oh, that would be tough though. That would be tough because this is book five of a series and it's hard to jump in with a different narrator that far along in a series like i think that would be jarring for all of it's the listeners even, 
it's not just one narrator. I wanted a different actor, voice actor, for a different voice talent for each. That's what I mean. But if you jump into book five and you've had Kate Rudd this entire time doing a fantastic job, and then all of a sudden you've got an ensemble cast, that feels that feels wrong to me. But it feels hurtful to Kate Rudd in her it beauty might, and glory. It might be, but I'm gonna knock this down ratings wise based on how I've consumed it and how it didn't meet expectations. You know, as an audiobook listener and as, pe- as somebody, you know, as you talk to people who do listen to audiobooks, you can say, well, why did you not, why do you not like this audiobook? The voice acting wasn't up to snuff. It didn't sound like the voices that they should have been. Yeah. And it's going to, it could turn people off from listening to an audiobook. And I'm not going to say to people, don't listen to it. Listen to it. It's fine. It's just so-so and it's not the greatest example. I think that's probably the thing. It's fine. It's not bad. It's fine. It's not Kate Rudd's best work. It's not going to win any awards. It's fine. It's fine. I feel like I've been very negative about the book, but I did genuinely enjoy it. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. I I like the mystery of of it. It's yeah, it just it was not my favorite, but I still liked it. I still liked it just fine. The only thing that I didn't like was fucking David. Why was his character so vastly different in this one? He seemed like a completely different person. Yeah. And. Like, I was thinking the whole time, because they were, there were clearly lots of, you know, red herrings with David always being with Izzy. David, David's, oh, David's clearly cheating on Stevie with Izzy. But no, that's not what was happening. Like, they're genuinely just friends, and he wants to take care of his friend, which is fine. And she's like, no, I have my own things going on. I don't like David like that. Fine. But then... He breaks up with Stevie at the end and then is making out with someone else, which he's not cheating because they're broken up. It's like that episode of Friends. They were like, exactly. Ross screams we were on a break. So I exactly. feel like, you know, they'll probably get back together, I guess. But I don't want Stevie to get back together with this David. I don't like this David. No, no, I agree. I don't like this, David. It's just, yeah, I, th- I, I struggled. I struggled with David's character very much. Exactly what you said. I've struggled with Stevie's character this one because she's just turned into a liar, liar, pants on fire. Yeah, and she's been so disrespectful to our friends. So yeah. disrespectful. That and was disrespectful weird. to Ellingham Academy as well. Yeah. Um. I also didn't I get think... I also didn't get the mystery of it. I didn't I did not understand how she put the pieces together that she did. No, I agree. I agree. I don't completely. get it. No, it doesn't make sense. Do you know what I think as we've just you've just kind of talked about those points. It's come together that it's because this is very much a setup for the next book. And whereas yeah. the truly devious trilogy, we knew going in there were three books to that story and yeah. you have to read all three to get the full picture. Yeah. Whereas A Box in the Woods, 
it was a standalone and you can enjoy it just for what it is. You don't even need the truly devious books at that point. Right. It's a nice standalone. This is clearly a set-up book for another one and I don't like that. I don't... I don't feel... I don't, I, I don't know. I just I don't feel like it needs to be a duology kind of story. Because there wasn't enough satisfaction from the mystery. Yeah. If that makes it all sense. It does. It does make sense. I don't know. <laughs> it, you know, saying saying all that, saying everything that we've said, how this one is not our favourite, you know, when book six comes out... I'm going to read I, it. I'm going to get it. I'm going to read it. I'm going to enjoy it, but... And we're going to talk about it in the podcast, so yeah. it's happening. Yeah. I really do love the fact, though, that they came to London. Can I put that out there? I, I think I that's really for, fun. For all the small little details, small details, apart from the, my raging details about timekeeping in London. Yeah. And being disrespectful to tourist traps. <laughs> I love the fact that Stevie came to London. I really did enjoy that. It was yeah. nice to branch out somewhere new. I'm a little bit upset that she didn't try to solve Jack the Ripper. Yes! If you're going to go on the Jack the Ripper tour, and I've been on one, it was quite, it was, it was a historical tour more than anything else. It was very interesting. Um, then you want to solve that murder. Yeah. I, Stevie and we talked, could solve that cold case. Yeah, and we talked about this at the end of Box in the Woods because we find out that David, at the end of Box in the Woods, is going to London. And so that we just assume, okay... Stevie's going to London. She's going to solve Jack the Ripper. I wish that's what would have happened. And they kind of allude to her maybe staying in London because, like, she hasn't chosen a college. She could go to college in London if she wanted to. So maybe she will now go to college in London and then she will solve Jack the Ripper. Yeah, I don't understand why Stevie's just looking at the U.S. colleges. Um the whole point of her going to Allingham was to solve a murder, and she solved it. She did it. Yeah. So, why can't she consider an a university, a college based on that principle? Based on get? murder. Yeah. Just go to college for murder. She'll probably get a scholarship for that. Allingham would probably give her a scholarship to go to college based on that. Yeah. And you know, like criminal science or something. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, she'd have to like get an education while she's there, but still, yeah, it's potential there. Yeah, look, regardless, I'm, disa- I'm disappointed she didn't solve Jack the Ripper. I the Jack the yes, murder, I no? wish that she had solved Jack the Ripper. But whatever happens next in Stevie's life, I'm there for it. Oh yes, fully supportive, mainly for yeah. Nate, but fully supportive. Yes, definitely for Nate because I love Nate. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I am interested, but you know what? You're still. You're allowed to think things aren't perfect and still enjoy yeah. them. Yeah. So, yeah, we're going. Yeah. Should we move on to Would Definitely. You Rather? Yes. Like I, did, oh, well, did I this say, Would You Rather. Did I say at the beginning of this one that this episode was 108 hours long? Nine no, days long? A, what did I say? It's a long episode. It's a long episode, everyone. I don't even think you declared it. Didn't I didn't. I thought I, I did. I don't think so. I'm not sure. I don't know. <laughs> We've this... only been at an hour and a half. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine because we're going to move on to Would You Rather. Yeah. This Would You Rather is slightly different. Because it is. 
of life. We are recording this ahead of time, significantly ahead of time. Yes. So we have not posted this Would You Rather on social media yet, but we will post it for fun. We will post it for fun. And for now, it'll just be us playing Would You Rather. Weird. That's weird. Weird. So first question. You're coming to London. Oh, am I? (laughs) Why not? (laughs) Don't get me excited. (laughs) Amanda, you are coming to London. Oh, I am. so excited. (laughs) Would you rather visit the Tower of London or the London Eye? And for those who did not realise, the London Eye is a giant Ferris wheel made of pods. It's very cool. Based on this book... I want to go to the London Eye. Is that so you can Agatha Christie everybody in the pod? Yes. Yes. Perfect. And I, like, you've described it as, like, being able to go up and see pretty much everything. And while I don't love heights and I don't love Ferris wheels, uh, it's an enclosed thing. So I would yes. feel safe and that would be fine. So, yeah, I want to do it. I want to, I want to do I want to ride the London Eye I do the London Eye is really fun yeah I have been to both locations of course you have and the Tower of London of course I have the Tower of London is really fun and if you want some deep history it's great um Traitor's Gate (laughs) Uh, where they used to put the heads on the spikes I like that it's 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 great. It's gruesome. It's great. It's all fun. But the London Eye is nice. It's like a half an hour trip around the circle it takes. Mm-hmm. And just getting to see the London Vista and it's stuff that you see from photographs all the time and it's beautiful. And you can get a sense of the city from this like capsule. And it's so smooth that like, you can barely feel that like, you're moving. It's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Okay. Um, so I'm going to go on the London Eye. And I want to go on the London Eye with you. Yeah, that would be fun. <laughs> <laughs> you said I was going to London. You're coming to London, yes. We're going to go on the London Eye together. There we go, sorted. Okay, done. Done. Would you rather have a pint in a local or a glass of wine in a fancy manor house? Not a big drink of wine. I'm not a big drinker either. Like, I don't know what I'm going to. Like,. I don't know what I'm going to choose for this one. I don't want to drink a pint of beer. I don't want to drink a glass of wine. It doesn't say beer. It says pint. Yeah, but... Okay, you're going to have a pint, or and it's going to be beer, or it's going to be cider. Never have a swift half with anybody, okay? I don't know what that means. Okay, so swift so swift, uh, half is half a pint. Okay. And if somebody says, oh, let's go for a swift half after work, they always get messy. Oh. Oh, okay. So it's like you're finishing work, so you go to the pub, and instead of having a big pint glass of beer, you'll have half a pint glass of beer. So it's you know obviously quicker to drink. But every time I've ever gone on, I've gone out for a swift pint after work years ago. It inevitably turned from a swift pint into going out. Oh, yeah. No, see, <sighs> I won't do that. I'm not. In, I'm not into that. I'm not into well, that. Well, also you. You're in London. You not a, you wouldn't have finished work, and you wouldn't be going right. Of pint yeah. Local. So do you do know I... I live in the northeast, though, where a local to me is like an old man pub. Oh, <laughs> with sticky floors. 
Think of the Winchester from Shaun of the Dead. Yes, I would love the to Winch- go to the Winchester. The Winchester is a local. Yeah, I'd okay. love to go there. So I'm going to have a pint in the local, and it's going to be like the Win. It's going to be the Winchester from Shaun of the Dead because um, it's would you rather? And the Lord right, and Master, you, you're the Lord and Master. Yes. So the, if you choose the Winchester from Shaun of the Dead, then I will choose, and I can't think of the name of the pub that's in Hot Fuzz. But I will go and have a cranberry juice. The only thing I can from that part is every time he's like, pine a lager, Mary, pine a lager, Mary. Like, that's that's all I hear. I don't know the name of the pub. But I do know. Is it the crown? The crown at Wells. I've just Googled it. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I'll go there and I'll have a cranberry juice and I'll throw teenagers out. Because they're too young to be in there. And then I'll sit in the empty pub by myself reading a newspaper and drinking cranberry juice. I'm not having wine in Fancy Manor House. I've been to Fancy Manor Houses and you just feel so uncomfortable. Yeah, I feel like I would have to dress very fancily in a Fancy Manor House and then like I would spill on myself inevitably. So I don't want to do that. No, no. I get my, in my trashed out converse and that would be about <laughs> Ripped jeans and, cra- and trash converse. It's my everyday outfit. Exactly. That's what I'm thinking. Next question. Would you rather investigate an axe murder in Gloucester or a missing person in London? I would rather investigate Jack the Ripper <laughs> in London. Is Jack the Ripper not a missing person though? Ooh. Yes. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to Whitechapel and I am going to solve Jack the Ripper. Can I be Watson to your Holmes? Yes. Or Holmes to your Watson, whichever. Yes. Cool. Let's let's go and solve Jack the Ripper's murder. Yes. In this fabricated trip to London. (laughs) In this trip to London, we are going to go on the London Eye and then go and solve a hundred x amount. Is that yeah, is that the murder. beginning of the episode? In this trip to London. <laughs> yes, it is. In this trip to London, sounds like murder. Sounds like murder. Okay, so this next would you rather question? There was a lot of food mentioned in this one, and so I want to know as a British person. Which of these foods would you rather eat? Because they they mentioned several, multiple times. So, Donna kebab, fish Donna and kebab, chips, yeah. full English breakfast, or Indian takeaway. Which one would you rather have? Um, and please tell me what is a Donna kebab. I know what similar, all the other things are. Similar to sh- it's, I say it's similar to shawarma, but. Of the same origin. Uh, fish and chips is the answer because I do like the odd fish and chip on a, on occasion. Yeah. I prefer an Indian restaurant to an Indian takeaway because okay. you get so much. Um, full English. Oh, mm, as long as there's black pudding on it. See, that I don't want the black pudding. Will you just say no black pudding then? Yeah, because I'm not an enthusiastic carnivore and eating a tube of pig blood does not sound your vampire credentials have gone in the bin it's because it's pig 
if it was you know, a, if it was a people sausage, it would be different. <laughs> That's cannibalism. Um, <laughs> it's human blood. Generally speaking, right? For example, if you're staying in a hotel, and there's two versions of the full English, if you're staying in a hotel, a lot of places just do a buffet breakfast. Yeah. So you just put whatever you want on. Yeah. However, if you're staying in a hotel and have scrambled egg, I will warn you: the chances are it's powdered egg, and yeah. it's just nasty. Well, I mean, that's that's how it is wherever you go. Exactly. Um, or you have it on the menu, but if it uh, t- tells you what's in it, and if it has, and you don't want the fried tomatoes, and you don't want the black pudding, just say, I'll have the full English, but no black pudding, please. And generally speaking, they'll let you substitute it with something else. So you can have like extra portion of mushrooms, or an extra tomato, or, you know, some yeah. whatever. You know. Yeah. So if it's on the menu, you can ask to replace it with something else, that's fine. Um, full English breakfasts are a luxury to me, and it's a it's, it's like a holiday a breakfast where I want to have a big breakfast so I can skip lunch because mm. it's so freaking filling yeah and I do not understand these people who can have a full English like every weekend no like toast is good enough for me you know big bowl of fruit yogurt granola <sighs> doner kebab okay get a pit of bread do you know what a pit of bread is? yeah yeah okay. pit of bread salad so lettuce um Cabbage, tomato, lots of salady stuff shoved in there. And the meat, and this is probably going to gross you out so you'll not want one, and the meat is um, usually beef, I think it is. It's brown. <laughs> what is Donna meat? Most are predominantly made of chicken, but occasionally beef. Okay. Um, but it is... It looks like an elephant leg. It's brown. Basically, they get all the meat and they just put in, and they get a big pole and they pack all this meat onto the pole and then it's cooked like it's on a spit. Mm-hmm. But it's instead of it being horizontal, it's vertical. Okay. Okay. So and it just turns and it looks like the easiest way to describe it, is it looks like an elephant leg. It's this big thing. So then they get the pitta, fill it with salad. And then they shave the meat off. So it's just these long, thin, wafer-thin pieces of meat in there. Okay. So it's generally beef, but you can't get chicken. And if you get chicken, it's not on the big skewery thing. Yeah. That sounds like that sounds like a Brazilian way to serve food. I feel like that's that's something that they do in Brazil a lot. They have it on they have meat on sticks and then they shave the meat stick. Can I just have it without meat? Yeah. Then that's what I'm gonna have. That's what I choose. I mean, I'll eat a fish and chips. I'll eat a fish and chips. I will. I don't like vinegar. Don't put vinegar on then. Eat however you want, but yes, fish and chips. I feel like if I ever get to go to London, I'll probably eat everything. (laughs) Right, so we're going to go to Greg's, okay? We're going to get you a nice pasty. You can have a cheese and onion if you don't want the steak bake. That's fine. Or if you want a sausage roll, you can get vegan instead of the actual meat one because we know you're a reluctant meat eater. We need to get you to go to Nando's for cheeky Nando's. You need to get some fish and chips, possibly even a roast dinner so you can have some gravy and Yorkshire pudding. What else do we need? Do we need to have an afternoon tea? Probably. Do you want a full tea with the sandwiches or do you want a cream tea where it's just scone? 
I'm full thinking about this. I cannot eat this. I, I'm a big girl, okay? I'm chunk, but I cannot eat all of this. I don't know. <sighs> I'm eating everything. I'm eating everything. That's what we need to end. do is just get one portion of everything and then just divide it. Okay. And then let's divide and conquer because then you're not eating a full dinner. Okay. Yeah, okay. Meal. That's fine. And then we can eat oh. multiple places. We can go to every single place and eat every single thing because we're just sharing one thing at every place. Exactly. This okay. is the loophole. Okay. Right, sorted. Are we doing Would You Rather still? I'm so confused. I don't know. This episode is all about London and it's breaking my brain. <laughs> Last this, question. This episode is excessively British. Oh my god, it really is. Hang tight, folks. It's excessively British. <laughs> right. Last question. Would you rather wear a sexy hoodie? Or a sexy onesie with buttons. A sexy hoodie. I don't like a onesie, especially if the feet are covered. I don't like it. No, just give me a hoodie. And then I can like sexily unzip it. Sexily put the hood up. Sexily tighten the strings until it comes down over my face like this. (laughs) Are you having like... Ears on this hoodie, or is it just going to be plain design? I mean, it's probably going to be a black hoodie, if we're being perfectly honest. Yeah, I, but I'm not wearing a onesie. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. No. No, thank you. I hate onesies. Onesies are for babies. Yeah. And I'm sorry if I'm in any way, shape, or form insulting people, but personally, I think a onesie is for a baby because it's easy. I do not want to strip down all the way to go pee. No. I hate it. I don't like that. So I'm and the one time a friend had a onesie and it had a back flap so he could go to the toilet and this gentleman is not of a svelte figure. I saw too much. I just say things about it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let's not talk about it anymore. Moving on. Moving on. Favourite. Oh. Oh, what was that? Favourite. Favourite. favourite? We've gone to Australia. Favourite. Hoodie for me, by the way. It's your favourite final thought quote. <laughs> of your favourite. Favourite. What's your favourite final thought quote? I've got a few. Now drink, you disgusting peasants! <laughs> Good. Oh, there is no such thing as a sex hoodie. <laughs> We're living in a clue board right now. Will you? Holy shit, that! I like that. <laughs> a little bit of fakery does so much. Ooh, it does. Do you know, okay. There was a couple of things that were just so freaking American slash, you know, stereotype. And the other thing was the where the stereotype came into play. It would rain soon. This is where it's England. There was always rain in the future. (sighs) And, oh, what was the... 
Okay, Stevie had had wine before, but no one in that, no one with an English accent in a long dining room in a country house had ever approached her before to offer her wine like she was an actual goddamn fancy adult, because she was not one an adult or fancy. <laughs> I love that. I just, I loved it, and I was kind of just thinking that's just. I don't know. It just felt intensely American as well. If this is an excessively British book with intense Americanisms, yes, I like it. It's a it's a good mix of the two. What have you got? I adore you all to the bottom of my black and cold heart, and my life would be nothing without you. Um, was was the quote from the book not? <laughs> Never explain where you get the blood. Again. Book, not life. Yes. <laughs> We're done with feelings, right? Amanda, can we please <laughs> quote the book, not life? <laughs> okay, finally. Do you want me to... He searched for something to say. I don't know. Punch him in the dick or something? Oh my god. <laughs> book not life that's all i got that's all i got they're all real life quotes from this week alone <laughs> yes oh my God. i did you know what we've been doing this for years you would think you'd know the pattern by now i know you would think you would think <laughs> i really did appreciate how much nate wanted to punch david in the dick Oh, just let him at it. And then Janelle yeah. can have our go as well. They're really good friends. I love this. I love Janelle. I love Vi. I love, I love those three. Them. They are precious. Yeah. Does one of them need to die, though? If if somebody dies, it can be Vi. And I hate that oh. I just said that out loud, but I love Janelle. And I love Nate. And I love Vi the third. Like could it Nate- be David? And then forever, Stevie's like, oh, I'll never, I'll never know the truth. Of... Well, she will, because she'll work it out. I feel like that would that would cause her to spiral too much. Izzy! Like, Izzy died. Yeah, let's kill Izzy. Yeah. Fuck Izzy. Yeah. Let's kill Izzy. <laughs> okay. I haven't got any emotional connection to Izzy Sorry. or the Passport No, books. no. We're done with feelings, right? We've got feelings? It's the intense anger. Yes. <laughs> okay. If you liked this, try this. What are you going to suggest? I'm going to suggest a book that I actually considered suggesting for us to do this month, but we didn't because we found better books to do this month. Okay. And it's called Only a Monster by Vanessa Len. And it's the last sentence which really hooked me in completely. Okay, I'm ready. It should have been the perfect summer. Sent to stay with her late mother's eccentric family in London, 16-year-old Joan is determined to enjoy herself. She loves her nerdy job at the historic Holland house, and when her super cute co-worker Nick asks her on a date, it feels like everything is falling into place. But soon she learns the truth. Her family aren't just eccentric, they're monsters, with terrifying hidden powers. And yes, Nick please. isn't just a cute boy. He's a legendary monster slayer who will do anything to bring them down. As she battles Nick, Joan is forced to work with the beautiful and ruthless Orion Oliver, heir to the monster family that hates her own. She'll have to embrace her own monstrousness if she is to save herself and her family, because in this story, she is not the hero. Yes, please. 
I yes. love the sound of that book. Yes. Uh, so it's that's yes, probably going to be on the schedule at some point. At some point. We'll find some reason to cram it in or just read it because we want to. Well, exactly. Yes. What have you got? Um, I am going to suggest You Owe Me a Murder by Eileen Cook. We are owed a murder. <laughs> I know. Sounds like murder. Kim never expected to plot a murder, but that was before her boyfriend dumped her for another girl. Does this sound like a tenuous link? Maybe this is what's going to happen in book six. Stevie's going to become a murderer and she's going to murder David. No, because we read or a series Izzy. where basically that happens, but it doesn't and we got annoyed. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. Kim never expected to plot a murder, but that was before her boyfriend dumped her for another girl. Now, Kim's stuck on a classic trip to London with him. It's no longer tenuous. <laughs> and his new soulmate. And she can't help wishing he was a little bit dead, even if she'd never really do that. <laughs> a little bit of murder. Just a little bit. A little bit Just a sousson. An order. An amuse-bouche of murder. <laughs> but when Kim meets Nikki, a stranger on the plane who's more than willing to listen to Kim's woes, things start to look up. Nikki's got a great sense of humor, and when she jokes about swapping murders, Kim plays along. That is... <laughs> Until Kim's ex-boyfriend mysteriously dies. Blackmailed, blackmailed by Nikki to fulfill her end of the deal, Kim will have to commit a murder or take the fall for one. Right, right now I am busy going on to our... Um our book are we, planning idea Are, are we thing. at like 2028 schedule now? Something like that. But I'm currently writing the theme challenge of Sounds Like Murder. It is on the list because dang. Perfect. Thank you. Yes. Very good. Very good. That sounds so good. Do we have a new indie spot? We do. This one, um, we've recommended a Kit Frick book before, um, but now I've just forgotten the title of the Kit Frick book. Oh! Oh! Something about who killed... Who who killed somebody? I want to say Jesse... Spanos? Yes, I, I wanted to say uh, Jesse Spano, but that was <laughs> from Save by the Bell. So I knew it was somebody Spano. Anyway, yes, we've recommended a Kit Frick book before, and so now this one is coming soon, and it's called The Reunion. Eleven Mayweathers went on vacation. Ten came home. It's been years since the fragmented Mayweather clan was all in one place, but the engagement of Addison and Mason's mom to the dad of their future stepbrother, Theo, brings the whole family to sunny Cancun, Mexico for winter break. Add cousin Natalia to the mix, and it doesn't take long for tempers to fray and tensions to rise. A week of forced family fun reveals that everyone has something to hide, and as secrets bubble to the surface, no one is safe from the fallout. By the end of the week, one member of the reunion party will be dead, and everyone's a suspect. 
The peacekeeper. Addison needs a better hiding place. The outsider. Theo just wants to mend fences. The romantic. Natalia doesn't want to talk about the past. The hothead. Mason needs to keep his temper under control. It started as a week in paradise, meant to bring them together. But the Mayweathers are about to learn the hard way that family bonding can be deadly. Ooh, sounds like murder. Sounds like murder. It sounds like murder. (laughs) That's it for this episode of Fictional Hangover. I'm Amanda. And I'm Claire. Join us next time for our live episode where we discuss the short story Vampires Never Say Die by Zoraida Cordova and Natalie C. Parker. Look out for our Would You Rather polls on social media. Don't forget about our book club and monthly challenges on Facebook. Be sure to visit our shop on Redbubble at fictionalhangover.redbubble.com for all your favorite fictional hangover-themed merchandise and become a patron of ours on Patreon at patreon.com slash fictionalhangover. Until next time, remember, the only cure for a fictional hangover is another book. You can find us at fictionalhangover.com, follow us on Instagram at fictionalhangover, find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash fictionalhangover, and on Twitter at fictionalhangover, no E-R. If you like this episode, check out our others, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you don't miss out. And finally, special thanks to Liz Emerson for her music. You can find her on Facebook and Patreon. Thanks for listening.